0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Sandra Glahn is Professor of Media Arts and Worship at Dallas Theological Seminary, author of many books, including, I love this title, Vindicating the Vixens, and also, Earl Grey with Ephesians. <laughs> I like that, too. Uh, her new book is Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Glan.
1: Thank you so much. My pleasure.
0: All right. Now, your di- title designates Artemis, but your opening pages uh, I- I- signal Nobody's Mother, and it gets a little personal. Do you want to describe there what what happened maybe uh, quite a while ago and how it changed you?
1: Yeah. So there was a journey to why in the world. What does Artemis have to do with anything? And it is rooted in my journey through infertility with my husband. Uh, I'm the fourth of five children, raised with a mother who was a lot like Maria von Trapp on Sound of Music. Just wonderful childhood, and long to be a mother myself. Wanted a big family, and it it never occurred to me that we might hit infertility. If anything, it occurred to me I might have 19 kids like Susanna Wesley. So, uh, when my husband and I hit the brick wall of infertility, not only was it a marital crisis, an ethical crisis, you know, morals, all those financial, but it was a spiritual crisis because rooted in First Timothy, where it says a woman will be saved through childbearing. I had heard wrong interpretations of that meaning. A woman's salvation—maybe not spiritual salvation, but her meaning, her worth, her purpose—is being a mother and having children. And while that is really a worthy goal and, and wonderful and important, it isn't God's calling for every woman. And so, where, what does Artemis have to do with that? Well, there were some scholars, maybe thirty to fifty years ago, who said Artemis worship was a big deal in context of the letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And that verse, uh, safe through childbearing, is in a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. that's in the New Testament. And in the opening chapters, Paul says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. And so it raises the question, what's the false doctrine that's on Paul's mind when he's writing to Timothy? And the book of Acts gives us a huge clue because there's a huge section of Paul's several-year ministry there. He's had to move from the synagogue to the Hall of Tyrannus, and then you have this—the first bonfire of the vanities, where the magic workers who come to Christ burn their books of magic. And after that, you have a huge brouhaha in the theater, which is still there, uh, where the concern is that when Paul the apostle was teaching that God's not—God's made with hands aren't actual gods. And so it cuts into the silver workers' trade. They're making Artemis souvenir trinkets and, and idols, and the gospel is hurting them economically. So they're upset about it. And for two hours, they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the, the running theory of Artemis was that she's a local goddess, she's a local mother, she's a fertility goddess. And so Paul is saying, you know, give birth because, you know, because it's kind of a apologetic against Artemis. but when scholars put that idea forth, pretty quickly other scholars came along and said, You're basing that idea on fourth century AD thinking, and it's really not appropriate to the time of Paul, which I believed, and that was the end of it, until I was in Ephesus with my husband on an anniversary trip, and the tour guide is showing us these stonework uh, carvings of the Amazon women. And I'm saying, yeah, so this is like fourth century, right? And she's like, oh no, this is, you know, within a hundred years of the first Christians. And there was the evidence. So that drove me to look at what was really going on with Artemis in the first century. And is there validity to the theory that she was on Paul's mind when he's writing to Timothy? Because that brouhaha basically moved him up in his timeline to depart. Uh, he was always... Already planning to go to Macedonia, the Book of Acts tells us, but he moved it up because it wasn't safe for him to stay. So he's riding back to his protege in the city, and you know it makes sense. The biggest thing on his mind would be the thing that ran him out of town.
0: Let me go back to the to the to the chronology for you uh, again. I mean, the reason why that verse in Timothy is is so is so important, and and you devote careful uh, examination of of its scholarly philological examination. But the reason why it's so important is because were you in the middle
1: of your theological studies when no I was trying to become a mom and right. we had we had seven early pregnancies. Well, we had 3 years of no success and seven early losses. Then an ectopic pregnancy and later after all of this happened uh, we had three failed adoptions before we finally had the successful adoption of our daughter, who's now almost 30. So, I mean, the timeline—it's—it's been a while. But I've been working on this theory for about a quarter of a century.
0: And and so you you went into your theological studies for, sort of was that was the situation of was your personal situation that the, the, the motivation?
1: That's a great question. I I started out as a freelance writer and I. Dallas Seminary was offering some writing and media classes. And so, you know, think about COVID, you're stuck at home at home. Well, back then I was home and there was no internet yet and I was isolated. So once a week, I thought I would take a master's level writing class because I was a writer. And I began to then be the teaching assistant for the writing classes and taking one class at a time. So I never had any intention of getting a degree, but... Uh, Because, actually, I didn't believe women should get theological education. That's how conservative I was on the whole question. Uh, Again, I thought they belonged at home. And so, uh, as this happened, while I'm already in a seminary context, one class at a time, I take a course, and whatever assignments I have freedom on, I'm looking at this issue. I'm looking at what the scriptures say. I'm going back to Genesis 1. Where did I miss the mark? And I'm seeing all these single women... That God is calling, and then I start wondering where did nuns come from? You know, certainly not in a context where motherhood was everything. So that led me to some studies of the early church and the you know, virgin martyrs and all of that. So it was a personal journey that with no intention to ever become a seminary professor because I thought I was going to be a mom soon.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I would say that that's that's the, the personal motivation to do academic studies, to to, to study, to read. Uh, I actually think that's a better motivation than you know a career motivation from the start. I want to be a professor. No, it's the material that grabs. You. I want more of this. I want to study this. I want to learn more about this. I, I think there's some truth in here that I, I need to I need to grasp. Uh, and and in your in your studies, uh, for, yeah. First of all, you find in the book lots of exceptions. Very important childless women in 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 the Bible in the Gospels. Uh were they an immediate inspiration?
1: They were an immediate inspiration, absolutely, because now most of them weren't married, but even Aquila and Priscilla, if they had children, uh, Priscilla is mentioned first as you know, she and her husband are ministry partners with Paul, so that wasn't apparently the first thing on Paul's mind when he thought of her. It's possible they were beyond their childbearing years, but it's also possible they were able to have children. Uh, but it wasn't central to the description of her, and the same was true of Phoebe. And uh, I, I saw even um, in the widows that were being taken care of, where we have Stephen's martyrdom as he's one of the people that's helping to care for widows, even some other stereotypes. I was surprised to find the men's ministry serving the widow's faith. Uh, and so some of it was also I'm in the South, I was in a very traditional tradition after I became a Christian and I had to sort through where did I get some of my thinking? Some of it is clearly culture, subculture, some of it is Christian subculture, but will it work in a hut in Kenya? Hmm. It has to be, if it's biblically true, it has to be you know, trans cultural. My husband and I did some mission trips and again, it pushed back on some of my thinking of women are indoors, men are outdoors, uh, because you can't tell that to somebody who's going to starve if they don't take their, a woman who doesn't go to the Agora, or the marketplace with her wares in the morning, it really has to work across social classes as well.
0: Uh, the line, again, the, the, in, in 1 Timothy, woman will be saved through childbearing. Other translation, you, you note, women will be delivered through childbearing. Which translation do you re- prefer?
1: Well, it's the word saved, it's the future passive indicative if you want to get technical with the, the language and, and it is the word for saved. And so then I did a survey of the whole New Testament of how that form of the word was used and it was used in only two ways. It was either used to refer to heaven and hell, you know, eternal life, or it was used to being delivered from an illness or, you know, brought back to health from an illness. And, you know, could be used then in the broader culture, as I'm looking at Shall Be Saved. It, it is used in childbearing. And what the, the whole reason the title of this book is Nobody's Mother is because Artemis is nobody's mother. It's, it's not that she's a mother goddess or a fertility goddess. It's the exact opposite. She is a goddess of confirmed virginity. And, in fact, uh, is not, you know, you think of Wonder Woman today, and she's based off of Diana slash Artemis. And you know, if people think of her as pro woman in the you know the modern comic book you know section, looking at her. But really, she was not a friend to women any more than men. She was as likely to take out women and children with her arrows as she would. In fact, really, there are more stories of her taking out women. Uh, hmm. So the idea that she's girl power in her time would not have been true. But also, you had as many male devotees to her as women. It's it, it's not like she was. For women, uh, even even in the New Testament, uh, Paul refers to Artemis, M-E-S, as a male uh, co-worker. And you figure his parents named their kid, follower of Artemis, uh, and he's a boy. So uh, I think in, in some ways it's a bad parallel, but it's a helpful parallel in that if you think about people being devoted to the Virgin Mary are not just women, right? Men and women can be devoted to a female figure. Uh, without it having to be about one gender or the other necessarily, and that was one surprise that I found because some of the earlier scholars had said, "Oh, Amazon women, Artemis, female goddess, therefore, you know, she's all about girl power," and that is just not what I found in the inscriptions, in Homer, in the you know the antiquity. Uh, I really didn't find any of that.
0: Yeah, well, we're, we're going to get to that that real, the historical correction that you make in Artemis in, in in a moment. But let me ask first, what did the early authorities of the church say of that line from Timothy. John Chrysostom, you, you mentioned Augustine. What, what was their take?
1: Yeah, it's, it's all over the place. Um, one of the sources of concern is Jerome, because Jerome looks at the Artemis of Ephesians, and the Ephesian goddess has a sort of a certain persona. Sometimes you'll see the woman with the sort of skirt and bow and arrow in emphasis, but you'll also see what Jerome calls poly- polymaston, many-breasted. And so that's really probably where we got the logic, was four century Jerome sees this, he's several centuries removed from Paul in that, uh, and it makes sense, you know, that's what it looks like. And so the logic of later people was many-breasts, therefore nurturing and mothering, therefore she's a mother goddess. Uh, Jerome's not the only one. There's, there's another early church person that sort of sees her that way. But that appears to be most of the rooting of, of Paul. But you you do see different takes on motherhood and what it means. Some say Paul's confusing or, you know, it's a local thing. Um, others do see an, an emphasis, on, emphasis on motherhood. Uh, some have seen it, uh, and this is a view I held for a while, as a reference to Christ that uh, she will be saved through the childbearing. So a woman will be saved through their, through their childbearing. Basically, if they continue in the faith. One of the challenges to that. Well, there are a couple challenges to that. One is that is not what Paul teaches anywhere else that a woman will be saved by works or by continuing in the faith. It's it's your works demonstrate your faith, but that's not your means of salvation, which is by grace through faith. Um, but but also uh men will be saved through Christ too. And so if you look at the logic of the whole passage there, he's saying uh he's shutting women down or wives down and teaching, uh which earlier on he's telling the men to stop being angry and the and maybe the husbands, you know, the in Greek the word husband and and man is the same and, and the woman for wife and woman is the same, and only context tells us which one he means? I think I think he's probably talking to husbands and wives here, especially because he has childbearing in view. That he's probably not thinking about single people. But anyway, uh, the reference was at times interpreted as women should stop teaching, but because Adam was first, and the woman the woman will be saved through childbearing if she basically continues in faith. Uh, why would that Why would that be a consolation to women not teaching? Any more than it would be
0: something that men would do. You you actually draw on evidence for a lot of women having leadership roles in the early church, and you 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 then go into some reasons why that history has been obscured. And one reason was being a shift toward infant baptism. How was that a factor?
1: Well, uh, we have some evidence that. Uh, women and men were baptized in the nude as a metaphor for you bring absolutely nothing and you're born again. And so what that meant was men are catechizing men and part of their baptize, baptisms. Women are catechizing women and part of their baptism for the sake of propriety. Uh, and so or in you know, in the early days of the church, you have a whole lot of adult baptisms. And even if you go today to Florence or Milan, you have a, you know, Siena, you have a separate baptistry outside the church, and it can accommodate both infants and adults. And so as the church shifts more toward, uh, I, should, I don't know if I want to say shift, maybe emphasizes it, uh, because it, it's there early on, right? Uh, but as, it, as that becomes an emphasis, then there's less of a need for women to be part of the baptism picture because of men touching adult women being considered sort of inappropriate.
0: So what is the situation in the city of Ephesus? What what is going on there when when Paul is there to prompt the letter?
1: That's a great question. So the first question I had to ask was, how would I figure that out? As I was on that first trip to Ephesus, I see the beautiful library in Ephesus, the ancient library that is usually on the cover of guidebooks. And I discovered it didn't come for a couple centuries after Paul. So it raised the question for me, what was here when Paul was here? What was the thinking and how do I identify that? So I was working with a historian in my, in my PhD studies, which was not at a seminary. It was, it was looking at history and Greek uh, as, as part of the University of Texas at Dallas. And the historians, I wanted them to vet my historical work. And so they said, your tools of analysis are, first of all, you're going to look at the ancient documents like Homer, which, you know, he probably started with an oral history, could have gone back 10 centuries before Christ. But it gives us sort of the backstory. So I had to find out what was the backstory in antiquity, but then narrow down, okay, what are people in the first century or within 100 years before and after Paul hanging on to in that myth? What are the things that are repeated? And One of them hugely was that she's a virgin goddess. Another one is that she's got a bow and arrow. Uh but a big connection. Let me ask,
0: how does Artemis appear in Homer?
1: Well, Homer tells a story uh, that her father's the big daddy goddess. Uh, God, I'm sorry. He's, so, uh, he's Zeus, and Zeus is married to Hera, who's very powerful. Zeus, Zeus cheats on Hera with Leto and conceives twins, which we know are Artemis and Apollo. So you can imagine in this crazy world that uh, here is Leto basically looking around the Mediterranean islands, looking for a safe place to give birth, and nobody wants to welcome her because they're all afraid of Hera's wrath. But eventually she sees a grove called Ortigia right outside of the city of Ephesus, and she gives birth to Artemis first, And, and goddesses and gods are born, I call them like bonsai people. They might be small, but they're fully mature and in full use of their faculties. They're not like infants or cherubs. So Artemis watches as her mother continues to writhe for nine days, giving birth to Apollo. And she says, There is no way. <laughs> I want anything to do with that. So she goes to Daddy Zeus and sits on his lap and strokes his chin, which is the equivalent to batting your eyes at your father and wrapping him around your finger and says, please make me immune to Aphrodite's arrows." This is the story, basically, that Robert tells. So this is the backstory for why Artemis has an aversion to sex, marriage, fertility. And so even though she has nothing to do with that, she takes on, outside of Ephesus, which is considered her natal city, she takes on a certain persona that's specific to Ephesus as a midwife. So that's also a little confusing because we connect midwifery with the birth event, but it's not the same as giving birth or being fertile. It's having mercy on people who do. And so to narrow it down, I looked at writings around the time of Paul and I looked at inscriptions and the Romans loved, you know, their writing in stone. And one of the things I discovered really in the last couple of years was that there was, actually a connection between magic and Artemis. The two stories in Acts I had viewed as separate sort of phenomena uh, religiously, but then I found, I would find like a spell that would be magic, but would appeal to Artemis, and kind of the lights went on, that the writer of Acts is giving a whole context for the city, and maybe not separate uh, yeah. religious influences.
0: Uh, a quick thing, uh, tell tell the audience, what is an inscription?
1: Yeah, so an inscription is a writing in stone. Uh, it's a, it's actually, you know, the writings, but unlike papyri or, you know, on, on paper-ish uh, substances, it's going to be something that's chiseled uh, or, you know, much more permanent. And the inscriptions are a wonderful source for New Testament scholars that really we haven't tapped into that much. And just in the past twenty years, as I've been studying this, first, the inscriptions from Ephesus got entered online, which was awesome because it meant you no longer had to actually leave Ephesus for a season to read them and then, uh people started producing translations. so in the year before I turned in my final manuscript for the first time, I was able to read somebody else's translation of everything said about women in the Ephesus inscriptions. And since I could then compare them to my own translations, I could, I could do some corrective work, which, you know, I was kind of on my own up to that point to have to do my own translation. It's just getting easier, and the internet is making it easier, and volumes are coming out. So all that to say, when our dictionaries for the Greek background of the New Testament uh, were put together, we were looking at almost exclusively the papyri. And very little, only really major inscriptions influenced our understandings of how words and religious terms were were used. And so it's been fairly recently that we've had so much access to that source of data. One of the strengths of the inscriptions for us is that a scribe could not come along later and tweak it or make a mistake with it. Uh, That is not to say our Bible documents aren't pretty darn accurate. They are. Uh, But it's just another source that gives us word usage that helps us to understand. Uh, An example that came to mind that I thought was really lovely that that didn't have anything to do with Artemis uh, uh, in terms of my studies, but it had to do with understanding the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about how a believer in Christ receives an inheritance, and the inheritance is God himself the Holy Spirit is sort of the first fruits of that. I saw in the inscription, somebody taking his inheritance to Artemis. And just the contrast of you take your inheritance to your God, Paul would have known about that. And he's saying, our God is better and bigger. He actually gives you an inheritance. And not only is it awesomeness, uh, but it's God it's himself. I think it ex- sort of explains some of the terminology Paul is using. He's borrowing from his culture. He's borrowing he has very deep insight into their religious life. And instead of being obnoxious about it, uh he he just co opts it and says Jesus is better. Hmm.
0: You you provide uh some nice visuals, the statuary of of Artemis, uh the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders. Of the ancient world, and and the shift is as you said from Artemis as fertility goddess to Artemis Artemis as goddess of midwifery. Okay, let's get as as uh, I want. I want to make sure that we get to how that that shift alters the line from Timothy. That's the big. That's that that's, that's, that's the, how are we then to understand saved from
1: childbirth? so uh, I will share my hunches you know what what i uh, what I hold uh, after my research so it begins with first Timothy one three Paul is writing a personal letter to Timothy. It has application for us today, but we need to remember it's a personal letter uh it's not like the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians written to an entire church the the second person is singular in that until the very end. Um, and so he says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. So then that raises a question what's the false doctrine that's being taught? So then you get a lot of hints in the book. The first thing that happens is if you go back to the opening two verses, Usually, when Paul writes a letter, whether to an individual or a church, he begins with grace and peace to you. and it's sort of a standard, you know, Paul an apostle to Timothy, grace and peace to you. But he doesn't do that here. Here he begins right with just a string of titles for Jesus, including Savior. And that in and of itself, if you look at the inscriptions, he is using almost all the titles for Artemis that are attributed to Artemis in her context and applying them to Jesus right from the start in this book where he's encouraging Timothy to stop false doctrine. Jesus is Lord, not Artemis. Jesus is God, not Artemis. Jesus is Manifest, not Artemis. Jesus is Savior. I think I found 34 inscriptions that called her Soteria, which is the female version of Savior, which is a cognate or form of the word that shows up in a woman will be saved. Which, how it her name takes on the idea of save in Ephesus, and if you think about childbirth, she's saving and delivering, and her arrows look like they can, uh, if she doesn't save you from death, she euthanizes you quickly. You think again of Artemis watching her mother ride for five days in a context that doesn't have C-sections, it was the number one cause of death for women. It was the number one fear of a Christian woman, probably, who was from for paganism, to Jesus Christ, thinking, I have to really believe this because I'm hacking off the goddess if she's real. I'm not going to her with my gifts and offerings, asking for a safe delivery. And I think that in his context, Paul is promising a safe delivery. I don't think it's for all time. I don't think it's for every church everywhere. I think in the opening days of Christian ministry, you often see uh, missionaries take on the local God and Jesus is stronger. Uh, you see something similar in the book of James where it says if the elders anoint with oil, the person will be healed. Uh, that doesn't mean every person is always healed in the will of God, uh, but but you often see in these contexts where you're taking on a local deity. Uh, I think you see something similar in uh, the Exodus where all the plagues are, you, you, know, you can identify a God in Egypt that God is bigger than, he's bigger than the frog God, he's bigger than the gnat God. I think something similar is happening here. And he's saying, Husbands, stop being so angry in public. Women who are teaching falsehood, you need to learn in quietness. So he's saying, Let them learn. Um, uh, four, and then the next line is Adam was first. And I think there he is correcting a creation story with the true creation story. In Ephesus, their creation story is Artemis's first, and you don't see a temple to Apollo anywhere in her city. Uh, hmm. it, in fact, there are other birth narratives that have him born in a different city. Uh, they they don't even claim him to be born there, or pay any attention to him there. I couldn't find really anything. Uh, it's it's all Artemis as the focus, and I think he's correcting sort of an an overarching uh, influence of creation story by saying actually, in the real creation story, the human was the first human was actually a male. I don't think he's saying males are better or preeminent or stronger. He is correcting a story with a story. And then, and even, she was deceived. Again, that doesn't mean all women. That doesn't mean Eve is the prototype of all women who are therefore more deceived than men. I don't think that's what Paul's arguing. The reason I don't think that uh, is not only the background over it, Second Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, "I'm concerned for all of you, male and female, that you'll be deceived like Eve was. So it's a human thing to be deceived by the evil one, not uh, a female thing. All of us are uh, at risk for that. So I think if you walk through the story, they have a creation myth, and Paul is taking elements of their story and uh, taking childbirth and man and a woman and Adam and Eve and turning it." Their local story totally on its its ear. Do you see in the letter a hint that there are a lot of single women that's causing a problem in the church? There are so many single women that, whereas he had told the Corinthians in their letter, I want you to think about staying single. In the Ephesus context, he says, I want the young widows to marry. That is completely opposite advice, which makes perfect sense if he's directing it to a culturally specific Problem. I want the younger widows to marry. And uh, so there are so many widows. He wants the younger ones to marry. If you have family, they take care of you. And then if you have no family, you're going to go on the church rolls, assuming certain character qualities. That's a lot of single women to take care of, uh, which suggests to me that probably they're coming out of paganism and have really overvalued celibacy. Yeah.
0: Well, the book is Nobody's Mother. Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. Professor Glon, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you.